Hello, everybody. Ryan Loyola here. Just wanted to take the time to thank you all for listening to this podcast. This episode that you're listening to right now is actually episode number 10. And I know it's a small number, but for me, it's a huge milestone. I started this podcast out of the boredom of quarantine, and just getting episode number one created and upload was one of the most insanely difficult things I've ever had to do in my life. And getting to episode number 10, it's just crazy to think about. And to celebrate, I want to get the chance to potentially help you, the listener, start your own podcast. To help me launch Nosedive, I use Buzzsprout, the easiest way to launch, promote, and track your podcast as well as getting it listed onto Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a quiet space, a microphone, and your voice, and you basically have all the tools that you need to create your own podcast. And, with Buzzsprout's help, it will be an absolute breeze. So follow the link in the show notes so that Buzzsprout knows that I sent you there, and it will get you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and it helps support the show. So. Join me and a hundred thousand other podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get your content out to the world. Now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ryan Loyola, sports nerd, theater geek, Snapple cap collector, wannabe political junkie. And welcome to the podcast where I take a plunge into the obsessions that captivate each one of us. You know the sword. The fascination that riveted you from the moment you first learned about them. The one that continues to knack at your brain until you can know every single shred of information there is to learn about it. To each one our own, the spectrums of our obsessions are incredibly diverse in their field. It's so manic that it's almost impossible to explain how or why we drown ourselves in it. Join me as I go off the deep end into the obsessions that continue to allure us, to pursue our love and our appreciation for the trivial things in life, that we have the most innate voices to be heard, the most compelling stories to tell. This is Nosedive. Growing up in the American Midwest, Mary Beth Tinker was the archetype of the all-American small-town girl. She is one of six children in the Tinker family. Her father was a Methodist minister from Hudson, New York, and her mom grew up in Pennsylvania and Texas. And once the two of them met and eventually got married, they ended up in Iowa, in this small town where Mary Beth grew up. When I asked her what she can remember about herself as a young teenager and adolescent, she tells me that, regarding herself, She was just kind of this normal, ordinary girl from a small town. In some ways, when I was younger, I was kind of a sort of a little goody-goody. And, you know, my dad was a preacher. And we were kind of respected in that community because of that, you know. And um, then, and I got good grades. And I was this little white girl, which I've, I've come to realize that makes a difference, you know. Kind of little teacher's pet there and stuff. And so that was my my younger years. And then as I got into junior high, oh, I still was, you know, going roller skating with my friend Connie. She was a little bit more, you know, edgy, but I was still kind of a little giddy girl. But even as a little giddy, goody two-shoes, growing up in America in the 1950s and 60s, 
civil liberties and civil rights always followed Mary Beth wherever she went. Until she was five, her family lived in this small town, Atlantic, Iowa. But soon after, they had relocated to Des Moines, since back in Atlantic, there was a public swimming pool that wouldn't allow black families to swim there. And her dad, being the preacher at the local Methodist church, he said that that wasn't right. So him and a couple other people from the church went to City Hall to argue against this rule that the pool had. And some people in the town got really, really mad that her dad did that. And soon, her dad lost his job at the church. So the Tinker family had to move when Mary Beth was five, and they ended up in Des Moines, Iowa. And in Des Moines, her mother got involved with this group for integration, the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE. And then again with her dad. He was eventually pulled out of his new church, since it was a white church and some of their black friends from their integrated school started coming to service. And people didn't like that very much, so they asked him to leave again. She tells me that her dad wasn't a rebel by any stretch of the imagination. He just believed that, you know, you should put your ideals into action. So that's how Mary Beth and the Tinker children were raised. And alongside from what she was experiencing at home in her town, racial and civil injustice had been magnified across the country. Sunday morning, September 15th, 1963, the Ku Klux Klan placed really strong dynamite in the basement of the 16th Street Baptist Church knowing that black children would be in Sunday school, and blew it up, murdering four little girls, 11 to 14 years old, the same ages as Mary Beth and her brothers and sisters. That next year was the Mississippi Freedom Summer, where about 700 college students went to Mississippi to help register African American voters, and that summer, the KKK just directed violence towards anybody who were trying to register these citizens. And as soon as these college students came to Mississippi, three of them disappeared. Andrew Goodman, Mickey Schwerner, and James Cheney. And after they disappeared, at the end of summer, their bodies were found. And sure enough, it was the KKK that had kidnapped them and murdered them. And Mary Beth's parents said, we can't just stand by and watch this. We have to go stand with these brave people. So that summer, her parents went to Mississippi And so my parents went to Mississippi that year and they came home on my 12th birthday and told us kids what had happened and how this house they were staying in, in Ruleville, Mississippi. The lady said, now tonight when the shooting starts, you just go in the back bed and you stay back there and you'll be safe back there. And my parents said, what are you doing, the shooting? She said, yeah, yeah, it's okay, honey. I'm used to it. This older black lady was risking her life to have my parents there and to be involved with the voting the voting, the registration project. And so in the middle of the night, the shooting started and my parents rushed up to the front and this lady was crouched by the window looking out in the dark night there in Ruleville, Mississippi. And there was a pickup truck out there and someone in it was shooting at her house and had just shot and killed her dog. And so my parents were like, let's call it, come on, we got to call the sheriff, let's call the sheriff. And she said, we can't do that, honey, that is the sheriff. So those are the stories that I heard when my parents, and they had many more stories from what happened from their short time that they were there at Freedom Summer. They only went for about two weeks at the end of the summer after the bodies were found. And that same week, across the world, off the coast of Vietnam in the Gulf of Tonkin, the U.S. Navy ship SS Maddox had been in a mild skirmish with a few North Vietnamese torpedo boats. 
that left four Vietnamese dead and the SS Maddox relatively unscathed. The incident over the Gulf of Tonkin didn't receive much national attention until the SS Maddox claimed that they were attacked a second time by the North Vietnamese. We now know in 2020 that this alleged second attack never actually happened, but at the time, President Lyndon B. Johnson needed a reason to get the U.S. public behind the war that was already going on. So after this claim that this U.S. Navy ship was attacked, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was passed, which gave President Johnson the authorization to use military force in Southeast Asia, and it led to a big escalation. Now the U.S. started sending thousands more troops to Vietnam, and soon, young people were risking their lives and giving their lives to make progress in what Mary Beth thought was this meaningless war. Now on the news, I was 13 years old that Christmas, we saw on the news all the time, war, war, war. I mean, there was still plenty going on with racial justice efforts, and it was the year of Watts, and so much else was still going on. But that year, by Christmas time, we just saw war all the time, these horrific scenes of the children running from their burning huts, and the napalm this chemical warfare that was made in Michigan, like a jelly that burns your skin and you can't just wash it off. It was being dropped by the planes, by the U.S. military, onto the villages and the families. And so we saw these horrible scenes when we came home from school. Every day I would be cooking dinner with my little sister, Hope, because my mom worked, and so we would cook dinner. And... We would watch the news on TV while we were eating dinner and cooking, and we saw these horrible things. Us kids were getting sadder and sadder. I mean, we were already sad about Birmingham, Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman, what had happened. And even in Iowa, the kind of discrimination and racism that was going on, it just seemed overwhelming. And in watching the news and the atrocities that were going on in their own country and across the globe, Mary Beth and other kids didn't know what to do about it. But one thing that stuck with activist kids of the time was this one letter written by civil rights activists James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin in the wake of the civil rights movement. James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin wrote a letter, a public letter, and they said what we should do is, they suggested different things we should do to respond. And one of them was we could have memorial services and wear black armbands around the country. So that's exactly what people did. And we had a memorial service in Des Moines and um, we wore black armbands. So that was my first experience with black armbands. It was all around that. So as, because the black armband is a symbol of mourning, of sadness when someone is, is died. And so the story is also a story about how to deal with grief and to turn it into action. Mary Beth heard some people talking about potentially wearing black armbands. And in the morning, some of the kids kind of just took the idea and ran with it. So that's how she heard about it. It was planned to take place on December 16th, 1965. And originally, there was supposed to be about 50 kids in a school district of around 18,000 who were supposed to come to school protesting the war by wearing this black armband. But right before it was supposed to happen, Some students at the local high school wrote and published an article about this planned protest. And when the administration got wind of this, principals across the school district came together and made a rule banning armbands. 
and anybody who didn't comply with the rule would face suspension. So Mary Beth had this dilemma. For all her life, she'd been the preacher's daughter who had been this goody two-shoes. She never got in trouble. The other students who had pledged to wear the armbands had a dilemma too, and a lot of them decided not to wear black armbands that day. And in the end, about less than 10 students in the district ended up wearing the armband that day. Mary Beth was one of them. And she tells me that if it weren't for fate, this case wouldn't be named after her in the first place, if only one of her friends actually paid attention to the plan. Our friend Perry Hutchison, he wore a black armband on the wrong day. (laughs) Before the rule was out there, so he didn't get suspended. It could be called the Perry Hutchison case. Um, But he didn't get suspended. He went through the whole day. So about, there were exactly five kids that were suspended. Mary Beth was in eighth grade at the time. She was the only one at Harding Junior High School to come to school wearing that black armband. And for her, what she could remember from that day, putting on that armband at home, getting onto school property, walking around, scared to death, nervous, just trying to get through things. She remembers that she went to her morning classes. She's pretty sure that her first period was sewing, and not much happened there. And then she remembers going to social studies with nothing happening there either. And then she went to lunch, and there was this group of boys teasing her, but she just ignored them like she always did. But once the lunch bell rang, and she went back to class, that's when everything started to go down. But then after lunch, I went to my math class, which was kind of my favorite class, Mr. Moberly. And he was waiting outside the door with a pink slip in his hand. And so um, I knew what that meant. So I was getting scared and I went down to the office and I was so nervous and everything. And um, I looked around the office and I looked at Mr. Mr. Willits and the vice principal. He said, now Mary Beth, take off that armband because it's against the rules. And so I looked around and, and I just took off the armband and I said, okay. And, but I got suspended anyway. And this whole protest, it was a group effort. Her older brother, John, and a family friend of theirs, Chris, also wore the armbands that day and got suspended that week. Her little sister, Hope, and her little brother, Paul, also wore armbands. But Hope was in the fifth grade, and Paul was in the second grade. And there weren't any rules against armbands at the elementary school, so they didn't get suspended. But even with that, everyone in the community started to notice that a majority of the Tinker children had worn this black armband to school, that they were all against the Vietnam War. And with that, it started this whole backlash from the community against them. You know, there was so much red baiting then. Also, anybody who stood up for racial justice or for peace was called communist. So, of course, that was the first line of attack. We were called communist, communist, communist. They threw red paint at our house. Um, People sent a hammer and sickle uh, postcard, you know, painted with a hammer and sickle, very artistic. Um, So that was kind of the reaction of some people. That was the first time in my life that I really felt personally the effect of crazy, dangerous people. I knew they were out there because I knew about Birmingham and I knew about uh, the other things that have been happening, the, Cheney Schwarner did so many other deaths in the, in the civil rights movement as well. 
but I hadn't experienced it in my own personal life. So I was lucky, though. I didn't find that out till I was 13 and people started, you know, threatening to blow up our house on Christmas Eve. Why? Because we spoke up for peace and we said that we were sad about people being killed in war. And so for that, we got threatened that this lady called me on the phone and said, I'm going to kill you. But luckily, our brave, calm parents prevailed, and they helped us to feel safe. And after all this happened, Mary Beth and the Tinker family made the decision to sue the Des Moines School District for infringing on their First Amendment rights to freedom of speech and expression. And in doing so, they had help from the American Civil Liberties Union. Luis Noun, who was the president of the Iowa chapter of the ACLU, had heard about what was going on, and she just didn't think it was right. What had happened to Mary Beth and the other students, and just because they were kids, that they shouldn't be deprived of their rights to speak and express freely. They hadn't hurt anybody. It was all a very quiet, peaceful protest. So the Tinker family and the Iowa ACLU filed suit at the U.S. District Court, which ruled in favor of the Des Moines School District. And soon after, they had filed suit at the appellate court, which reaffirmed the district court's ruling in a tie vote. However, across the country, down south, during this time, another case had been making its way across the court system. Burnside versus Byers. In Philadelphia, Mississippi, high school students were banned from wearing buttons protesting racial discrimination. So in response, a couple of parents sued the school for infringing upon the students' rights, in which both the district and appellate courts ruled in favor of the students and parents, right around the time that Tinker had lost their case at the appeals level, leading to a circuit split, where two appellate-level courts ruled in opposite directions in two very similar cases, which was a perfect route to appeal to the Supreme Court. And three and a half years after being suspended for wearing a black armband to school, after losing the case at the district and appellate courts, on February 24th, 1969, the Supreme Court announced their ruling. In a 7-2 majority, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Tinker family, with Justice Abe Fortas writing in the majority opinion that, quote, it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate, end quote. Most importantly, noting that students in schools have free speech rights, but cannot cause substantial disruption to school proceedings with their speech. Tinker v. Des Moines became the landmark Supreme Court ruling in defining how First Amendment rights were to be interpreted regarding students and teachers at school. And after losing at the district and appellate level, Mary Beth never thought that there was any chance that the Supreme Court was going to rule in their favor. Well, no, I never thought anybody was going to rule in our favor because I'm a kid. I mean, you know, kids have this experience like, oh, yeah. Some big important adult is going to, some judge is going to say that, hey, the principal was wrong and, the, and Mr. Moberly was wrong and Mr. Willitson was wrong and all the superintendent of school was wrong and, oh, the kids were right. I never thought that was going to happen. So I was really surprised when the Supreme Court ruled the way it did. And even though the Supreme Court ruled in their favor, 
for Mary Beth, it was still a struggle to be happy about it. It was hard to be real happy about the ruling. It was a very strong ruling. And the way it's written by Abe Fortas, it's one of, it's really a, a beautiful document about what education should be in democracy in a lot of ways. And it says that children, students are people with the rights and responsibilities of, of persons under our constitution. So that was major. It's really a children's rights issue. It's a, it's an international human rights issue, actually the rights of youth, the rights of children. So it was a very beautiful ruling, but the problem was that it was hard to be happy because the war was raging. It was one of the worst years for the Vietnam war. So the news every single day had all these atrocities and, and um, killings and, and the mor- morbidity of the troops. And the, Vietnam was a war of atrocities. And so there were many horrible things going on. And, yeah, it was hard to be like, oh, wow, now I can wear a little black ribbon to school. You know, hey, we wanted to end the war or at least have a truce in the war. That's what we were calling for was a truce. And there were others around the country that were calling for a truce that year in the war. Um, Christmas 1965, there had been this um, bombing campaign that was sort of on hold a little bit. But um, so, yeah, that was actually the goal. Now, the students' rights issue and the First Amendment issue really came up later. I mean, when you express your First Amendment rights, the right to free speech, freedom of religion, the right for the state not to impose a religion on you, the right to assemble, to petition, and um, let's see, religion, speech, press, the right of the free press. When you use these rights, you're using them about some subject. There's something you want to say. So we just wanted to say something about the war. Our message was mourning for the dead on both sides of the war. That's what made it so controversial, I think. Um, And then to call for a Christmas truce that year in the war so that both sides could negotiate. They did have a truce in the war that year, but we really wanted to stop the war. Mary Beth was a junior in high school. At the time, the Tinker family had moved from Des Moines to this really big, scary city. St. Louis, Missouri. They moved there around November of 68, and later that February, they had won the case. And it was crazy for her because Newsweek and Time were coming to the school and taking her out of chemistry and focusing on her. And she was like, oh no, this is crazy. I always wanted the media to kind of go talk to the other kids, you know. But eventually, I realized that the media was always going to be, you know, focusing on me in some ways. I think because I was the youngest and I was a girl and I broke all the stereotypes about the Vietnam War protester, you know, it's out there. Um, so at some point I just decided, okay, okay, I'll step up. I'll do it. I'll, I'll speak up. And, you know, it gets easier and easier. And in the 50 years since Tinker v. Des Moines was decided, so much has happened in her life. She mostly went back to her normal life, away from the public eye. She settled down, and she had a son, and for many years, she was a craftsman piano technician, repairing in-tune pianos. She loved that job. But soon after, she slowly went back to school, eventually going to nursing school and becoming a nurse practitioner, but with an emphasis on teenagers and kids. 
And that's when I decided, you know, these kids really need to start speaking up for themselves and having a voice and advocating for their own interests because they're getting a raw deal. And children and teenagers are a discriminated group in our society. Our society does not run on the basis of, hey, I wonder what would help the kids thrive. I wonder what would be good for kids. Let's do that. It doesn't really work like that. In fact, it's the opposite. And it's through her work as a nurse practitioner in D.C. that she saw the blunt of what was happening to kids when no one was advocating for their rights regarding all these health disparities, especially when you add on the layer of racial injustice that had been going on. It's how she learned that one-third of children there live in poverty, a great majority by far of those are kids of color, that the black kids in D.C. are seven times more likely to be hospitalized for asthma. She started as an emergency medical technician, and she was working as a trauma nurse in the hospital. And working there, she saw all of these kids, they're just getting shot. They're getting shot because of these adult politicians. Because, and then they cut back the funds from their schools. The after-school programs never have enough money. Kids are always, their programs are always struggling for money. You've got to have some bake sale if you want to get the kids their band instruments. You know, it's so pathetic. We have money for so many other things. There's plenty of money for war and military and the police and all kinds of things. But when it comes to children and teenagers getting what they need, Kids are basically getting a raw deal. So that's when I saw it up close and personal a lot, working with kids in the health field. And um, I said, wow, these kids really need to speak up for themselves and have a voice. So then I said, hmm, I wonder if there's anything in my background that could help them, that might be an example for them about speaking up and doing something that they care about. So in 2013... Mary Beth left the hospital she was working at and started traveling across the country, speaking at middle schools, high schools, and colleges about the First Amendment and student rights and how they can each make a difference. She called it the Tinker Tour, promoting youth voices, free speech, and free press. Two years later, in 2015, the Tinker Tour and the rest of Mary Beth's siblings actually went back to Des Moines to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Tinker children getting suspended. And in 2019, they marked the 50th anniversary of Tinker v. Des Moines being decided by the Supreme Court. Working on the Tinker Tour, doing things like standing up and speaking up for yourself and fighting back, and doing things like getting people to advocate for themselves to the city council or state legislator or House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate, it was therapeutic for her to help get these kids take action about the issues that are important to them. And in talking about the Tinker Tour, Mary Beth and I actually had our own little session of the Tinker Tour in which we had a discussion about the First Amendments, the next generations of protesters and activists, and how our democracy is functioning right now. And usually what I would do, as seen in what you're listening to right now, is splicing it all together with me narrating as we go. But I wanted to do something different today. And given the gravity of our conversation, I didn't really want to touch it. So here's the rest of my conversation with Mary Beth Tinker, mostly unedited, about the world today and where we currently stand in our democracy. When you see 
protest in these days and age, this day and age regarding Black Lives Matter, looking at gun violence and the March of Our Lives in Parkland. Yeah. What what are you thinking? I'm thinking I'm so happy. I'm so glad. I mean, you know, just the things, the kids, the families I've dealt with in my work. Um, so yeah, for kids to stand up for safer gun laws, I'm with them. In fact, I'm making calls, you know, and postcards to states right now to try to elect gun sense candidates with uh, my group is Moms Demand Action. And that's the one I'm a member of, but it's part of an umbrella group called Every Town for Gun Sense. And so, yeah, you can go there and make some calls. It's very easy or send some postcards, you know, and find out what's going on, um, you know, in California. And as it turns out, of course, gun violence is all related to other issues. I mean, it has to do with financial equality, economic equality, housing. Um, you know, when you've got a huge rise in homeless kids, which we have had recently in our country, it doesn't exactly help gun violence. Um, or them from being vic- when you have uh, families that are under enormous stress, um, you know, then you're going to have more foster kids and all this stuff. So it's all related to all the other issues. They're all connected. The climate, um, you know, gender equality, and it's all connected. The environment, the workers' rights, um, women's rights, and it's all connected, really. When you look at the student protesters of today and look back at yourself and the other kids who wore those armbands 50 years ago, is there a big difference in between the two or would you say that they're cut from the same cloth? I don't think there's a big, well, there's a big difference, you know, culturally, I think because of social media and all that. I mean, we had an armband, you have a, I mean, young people today, you know, you have a computer in your pocket, you have all this you know, social media. So it's powerful. It's really good. Um, but yet it's, you know, fraught with other issues also. But um, I think the basic drive to advocate for your own interests is it's almost innate, but it gets sort of put down when you're a kid, as you're growing up, you know, but then when it comes back, it's like a spark. You feel like, wait, now this is what I need, and I have a right to say that, and I have a, I deserve to have what I need. And so it's just like that natural drive to express. I mean, it's really what um, kids' rights is all about. Kids advocating for their own interests. Sure, they can have adult allies. They can have people, representatives, blah, blah. They can have, you know, people like me, they're allies. Are you? But when young people advocate for their own selves, it's so powerful. And um, I've seen kids like in second grade, sixth grade, uh, ages doing different things to advocate for themselves. And it's very powerful. But I really believe also that the voting age should be lowered to 16. And there is a campaign. There are campaigns around for that. I think Santa Cruz even has had some, but I'm not sure. I I know San Francisco, D.C. almost passed it last year. We had the votes lined. It was really a student-led campaign. High school students led the campaign, but... Um, I also testified in favor of it, but um, the votes were there. Well, you know, D.C., we have the whole problem with not being a state and being basically a colony. So we don't have any representatives or senators that can vote in Congress or the Senate. So 
we have a DC council, but of course we're going to change that with statehood and you can get involved and see what's going on in that. We want to be the 51st state and the campaign is really moving along. But in conjunction with that, I also believe that um, 16 year olds should vote. So on the DC council, we, there were the votes were lined up to pass 16 year olds voting in DC, but one person changed their mind then on the council. So it lost, but it's not the end of the campaign. I think this is a, a movement whose time has come and it's going to keep advancing. And, and there's this, there's this whole age old statement that, that adults will tell kids the idea that, Oh, Oh, young people, you guys don't know every, you don't know anything. You haven't gone through life. You haven't had that whole experience being the kid who used to be told that statement as an adult. Now, what do you make of that? That's what people always tell discriminated groups. I mean, if it was women, they were like, oh, you women shouldn't be able to vote. Oh, you don't know anything. Just let us manhandle everything. I mean, whatever the group is, that's what they say about the group they're oppressing. So, you know, it's really to be expected that people are going to say kids don't know anything. People always said, oh, you kids don't know anything about Vietnam. Well, I found out later that the adults knew almost nothing about Vietnam. Most of them couldn't even find it on a map. I mean, they knew nothing about the history. Nothing. I, I realized this later. Now, kids, they, the Parkland kids, the March for Our Lives, and I really love all of those um, students at Parkland, and I've been involved with them pretty much since even before that happened. Um, but since then, for sure, they came, some of them, the journalism students came up to help us celebrate the 50th anniversary of the ruling in Des Moines last year. And we went to a lot of schools and it was really wonderful. But um, yeah, they say, oh, you kids don't know anything about guns. You don't know AK, blah, blah. Well, what they know, hey, they have knowledge that others don't. Powerful knowledge. They know a lot. Kids know a lot. And kids have feelings. And that's very important, too. Of course, you know, that sometimes that gets kind of squashed as kids go along and they're always uh, you know you're you're taught not to show your feelings and try to hide your feelings but it's a powerful uh sort of what you know a powerful quality of of young people and and speaking of um speaking of tinker and the ruling i want to i want to get a little bit into the actual um text and the way that it's applied in future cases so Tinker v. Des Moines, it's created this, um, it's created like the so-called think, the Tinker test or substantial disruption that the, that expression or speech, it's basically allowed unless it disrupts the procedure of the school and its learning environment. Do you agree with that application of the rule and what came out of it? Well, what is substantial disruption? It's supposed to, there the two exceptions in the Tinker ruling is that the speech should not substantially disrupt the school. And they include also the prediction of disruption. And then the other thing in the Tinker ruling is that um, the speech should not, um, you know, impinge on the rights of others, whatever that means. So both of these legs of the, of the um, exceptions are really sort of a gray area. 
what is substantial disruption? When a girl in Arizona at Buckeye Union um, High School wore a Black Lives Matter shirt to school for photo day a few years ago, she was blocked from wearing it. But the lawyers for the school district basically talked to the principal and he's they changed their policy but because they were letting other kids wear t-shirts with their message. So um, where the substantial disruption is, and sometimes people say, hey, well, there's not going to, let's say a kid is wearing a Confederate flag to the school. And this has been argued. It's not going to disrupt school because all our kids, most of them at least, they like Confederate flags. There's only a few of those black kids that don't really like it. And they're not going to say anything because they're outnumbered. Well, sorry, that doesn't count because that's not the way our democracy works. You're not supposed to have the tyranny of the majority. We have to look out for the rights of the minority also. And so in that case, the school would be impinging on the rights of the black kids to feel safe in school and not have to see a Confederate flag every day at school. So you can, by, through different legs of the ruling, you know, there are, it leaves a lot of gray area. And and what do you think about the current environment, the current um, environment on college campuses and high school campuses regarding like free speech, like with microaggression, safe spaces, and hate speech, and how that's applied? Yeah, I think it's 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 certainly the debate of of you know the day. Um, I think things like things like trigger warnings. I have sort of mixed feelings about it. Being a trauma nurse, I do believe that some we have to think about trauma and you don't want to re-traumatize people who have been traumatized. And there's a lot of trauma in our society, a whole lot, because of the um, unfairness of the society and the inequality in the society. There's just a whole lot of trauma. And there's not money for prevention of trauma. I worked at a a program where we went, it was through a children's hospital where we went out into the schools to teach about good touch and bad touch to try to prevent sexual abuse. And the program was cut because, you know, no money for that sort of thing. Oh no, we'd rather traumatize, you know, people for a lifetime of, you know, disability and God knows therapy, what else? So there's a lot of trauma, and when it comes to trigger warnings, I do have mixed feelings about it, but I think it's a you know worthy debate as far as free speech um you know that's a debate also um some people have come to believe and and argue and and there's I can certainly see why that oh fine, the first amendment not everybody has access the same equal access to the first amendment um like the marketplace of ideas like I think it was Wendell Holmes that talked about I'm not sure. What if somebody owns the market and you don't have the, you know, if you work some, if you're a low paid worker, you may not have the same free speech rights in your life as someone who's a lawyer who knows all this stuff, who's had every opportunity. So there's kind of an inequality when it comes to the First Amendment. Um, and you certainly, I certainly see it traveling around the country. I mean, if you go to low income schools, schools with a lot of kids of color, Forget the free press. They don't have journalism. Only 25% of high schools have journalism. And you know which high schools those are going to be. Um, you know, places like oh, Palo Alto, probably the high schools in Santa Cruz have nice journalism programs. Um, you know, the, these schools have them. But 
there's kind of a sliding scale when it comes to the First Amendment. So I can see why people argue that. And also the First Amendment, it hasn't really, there's been a lot of uh, oppression, like racial injustice. Um, and some would argue that the First Amendment hasn't really helped that much. Where are we today? We're not that far along. But then there are other, you know, people that I respect, um, people of color who argue that, no, the First Amendment is very, very important to fight for racial justice. We must have free speech, even at the cost of allowing, you know, racists and, um, you know, white supremacists, et cetera, to speak also. So I don't know. It's a debate. It's, it's something I think about a lot. And there are some interesting books that have been written about it. Um, lately, there's one by Nadine Strassen called Hate, Why We must not censor it. There's another book that's written by a student. I'm trying to remember the name about why the First Amendment is overrated and, you know, we need to suppress these hateful um, groups and speakers, etc. So, yeah, there's a lot going on there. And following Tinker, there's been a couple of, there's been a couple of Supreme Court cases that, that, that have been, even though Tinker has been um, the precedent and this landmark case that have kind of kind of rolled back and limited the scope of students' free speech, particularly uh, I want to look at uh, Bethel School District versus Frazier, uh, Hazelwood versus Kohlmeyer, and Morris v. Frederick. Uh, back to me and my narration. Just for context, these three Supreme Court cases have rolled back some of the power of Tinker v. Des Moines and actually limit what students can say on school property. Bethel School District v. Frazier. A high school student was suspended for making a speech with an excessive amount of sex puns at a school assembly. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the school. Hazelwood versus Kuhlmeyer, a high school newspaper, was censored by the school administration for publishing articles about divorce and teen pregnancy. And finally, Morse v. Frederick. A student was suspended for displaying a banner that read, quote, bong hits for Jesus, end quote, while everybody was outside on school property watching the Olympic torch rally the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the school. What, looking at those cases, what do you think, given the fact that they are rolling back what students can say in school? Do you think that there are, there should be, restrict, there should be certain restrictions to what students can say, given these three cases? Um, well, I myself, I do think there are, all rights have restrictions even the Second Amendment, which I like to remind people, um, there are, all, all rights have limits. I mean, you can't go out in the busiest street in town tonight and be like, hey, let's go assemble. Let's all just sit down and do it. I mean, yes, you can do it as a protest if you're willing to pay a price and maybe, you know, be arrested or something like that. And so we do have to decide what is your, what are you willing to do and take consequences for, of course, and civil disobedience must be nonviolent, but there are certain, you know, laws and rules we're willing to break and pay the consequences. That's called civil disobedience. That's what we basically did. But um, in all of these other cases, there was um, like Hazelwood. These these cases, well, I'd say the most damaging one was Hazelwood. That was a a case, um, Kathy Kuhlmeyer was the one of the, there was three girls actually involved in the case and they were newspaper editors in Hazelwood, Missouri. And it was decided in 1988. And, um, in that 
case, they decided that it was basically saying the school sponsored speech that the school has more right to censor it. And it was really a terrible decision. It was just, I mean, basically they, they just, these kids were writing articles about, um, you know, pregnancy and divorce. There were so many pregnant kids in that school of 4,000 students that um, they had a nursery there for the kids, but the students were being told, you can't write about this in your school paper. But uh, there are now, I think, 14 states that have passed legislation sort of going around that decision. Um, the legislatures of 14 have decided that we're basically going to go by the tinker ruling. Unless the speech is substantially disruptive or impinges on the rights of others, we're going to allow it. Not going by Hazelwood. So there, are, And California is one of those states, by the way. So that's called the New Voices Movement to override the Hazelwood decision, basically. Um, and then there was a case about obscenity, Bethel versus Frazier, saying that you cannot have obscene speech in school. And then the last one was the infamous Bong Hits for Jesus case from Alaska, where students held up a sign saying Bong Hits for Jesus. That established a new space, school sanctions space, not in school, not out of school, but school sanction. So now, now the big issues, I think, are whether the extent to out-of-school speech, how much schools can discipline students for out-of-school speech, and around social media. There hasn't been a Supreme Court case around students and social media, but it's only a matter of time probably before there is. Um, but out-of-school speech, there was just a big victory in Pennsylvania not too long ago uh, for out-of-school speech by students. It was called VL the case and this was a cheerleader who basically she got she was ticked off at the cheerleading group so she and her friend held up their middle finger and basically said screw cheerleading screw school screw everything and and they got kicked off the cheerleading team and the if the, the ruling is very interesting because the kid and their mother had been had to sign something saying they would not do anything that reflected poorly on the cheerleading squad and blah, blah, blah. Well, the, as the lawyers argued and won in court, the judge made this point. You can't sign away your First Amendment rights. No principal can get you to sign something that says, oh, and by the way, I will not speak up about the things, you know. So that was one of the basis for the kids winning dates. But it's kind of unusual because now mostly out of school speech, if you can, sh if the school can show that it substantially disrupted school or impinged on the rights of others. It's fair game for censorship for students. But, and do you think that in this, that in, in the terms of Bethel and Morse, that indecent and obscene of objectively indecent and obscene speech, uh, is a disruption is, to school? Well, remember there is no objectively obscene and indecent speech. Right. I mean, that's argued from kingdom come. I mean, I think, was it Stevens who famously said, I know it when I see it. He said, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. So, I mean, what is like, I mean, I, people talk about how teaching about condoms is obscene speech and we're not going to have that. And then, you know, others argue, well, wait a minute, that's health. We're, 
I mean, I've been to schools where they tell you not to say the C word, condoms. And I'm a nurse. Now, that's abuse of children and teenagers, if you ask me, because it was one of the highest uh, rate of HIV transmission was among teenagers. And you're telling me I can't tell kids about condoms because it hurts your feelings? I mean, so there's these kinds of issues, um, you know, when it comes to what is obscene. I mean, kids were wearing uh, bracelets, little bracelets that said, um, I love boobies. I heart boobies. It was about breast cancer awareness. Now, that was an interesting thing because in one district court in Indiana, they ruled against the students, but in Pennsylvania at the appeals court, I think it was, they ruled in favor of the students. And saying that's because people were claiming that it's obscenity. Others were arguing, no, it's not. It's about breast cancer. Oh, I said the word breast. Oh, no. So, you know, there was kind of a big argument about that, too. There can be a lot of different opinions about it. That's why I tell students, you might as well learn about all this and weigh in too, because it's not like some adult somewhere knows the answer. And they certainly don't agree on a lot of these things. Um, and I'm just curious. I know we talked about the whole the idea of the First Amendment and how useful it is today. How safe is the First Amendment in today's society and how is its health in general today? It's not safe at all because, well, first of all, voting suppression is a huge problem, as we know, in our country. So everybody, we have to all help everybody to get out and register to vote and get to a ballot and get it in for sure. Voting is hugely important. But the First Amendment, I mean, you're, you're, well, the, we know how the free press is under attack. I mean, that's crystal clear. And then, I mean, really, it's like, I always tell the kids in the high schools and things like, your rights are like your muscles. If you don't use them, you could lose them. So you have to use your rights. And there's so much self-censorship that goes on. You censor yourself. Um, and a lot of times I think this is especially true for those who have been marginalized for women, girls, um, people of color, you tend to think you have less confidence sometimes. Um, you censor yourself. You think, oh, this might get somebody upset. And, you know, I censor myself some too, but um, it's a huge problem. So I think the First Amendment um, is very precarious. And it's, as I said before, there's a sliding scale when it comes to the First Amendment. So those of us that have, you know, certain advantages, whether it's our race or our uh, gender, et cetera, we have to use some of that to equalize things and to throw in our lot with those who, you know, have been, you know, basically messed over so that others could thrive and advance. And um, one of the fun things that once I officially um, booked this meeting with you, I actually got into contact with my former government teacher in high school Great. To, to tell him that I was doing this interview because I, I felt like he would be super giddy and nerdy to do this. And um, he, he gave me some questions. He was like, do you have anything oh, to ask great. Mary Beth? And I've, and I've asked you those questions already. And I'm just thinking, what would you say to anybody right now who's teaching civics and teaching government to today's youth right now? Yes, I've just been working on 
writing something for Education Week for teachers because I want to say some things to teachers right now. And I just want to say that I am with you. And I just think it's so, it's so hard what teachers are dealing with and what a lot of parents and kids and students are dealing with. And if, if there are ways that I can help, I'm going to offer for one thing to do video calls to classes um, for sure. And no fee, especially for public schools, but um, you know, if I can help in that way, I could do some zoom calls with classes and I just want to say that I admire teachers so much and I, think this is so wrong what has happened this this the way this pandemic has been handled is just an absolute outrage and it's it's just been such a disrespect for people for public health and it does it did not have to be this way and so you know i just feel so bad for the way that things are going but we all have to take action and that's what we tell the kids you know and students is Take action. If you see something unfair, you have two choices. You can either do nothing or you can do something. And so we have to take action and we have to encourage our students and, and help the students too because so many of them are, are precarious, so many students. And even whatever age students, you all know you're at a college. It's a difficult time for students in college. It's a difficult time for all young people. So and for people who care about young people like teachers and preschool workers and you know so we all have to kind of stick together and and advocate for policies and vote for for representatives that will represent our interests the interests of youth um you know get rid of college tuition debt clean up the environment um stop evicting families all of these things that help young people, you know, we have to look at which candidates are in favor and which are not. And then, you know, really work to get people in who will vote our way to decrease gun violence, increase affordable housing, workers' rights, pay, increase the pay so that, so all of these issues um, are things that teachers can talk about with your students. And the thing is students, Love controversial issues to talk about and current relevant issues to talk about. And you can tie all of this into whatever it is you're teaching about and make it relevant for students and, and interesting. Controversy is good. If we don't have controversy, we don't have democracy and we don't have education. So it's okay if it's controversial. We just have to learn to talk about things with respect and in ways that are, are respectful. Teachers' rights also is a very interesting subject. That's a whole other thing. But the, the Tinker case said that neither students or teachers leave their rights at the schoolhouse gate. And there were cases after the Tinker ruling that also cut back the rights of teachers. Teachers' rights and students' rights usually kind of go together. Um, so right now it's not a good time for teachers' rights or Students' rights, but teachers are standing up and speaking up just like a lot of students are. So it's a very heartening time in many ways, even though it's also a very frustrating and, and sad time. There are some really good things going on as well. And to do this interview with me, I actually brought along one of my friends and colleagues, Cora Fortune, 
who is the co-editor-in-chief of City on a Hill Press, the student-run weekly at UC Santa Cruz. And she also joined in on the fun, too, in talking with Mary Beth. Here's Cora. And I think one thing that I'd love to hear um, from you is about you've done a lot of organizing work on various things throughout the years and um, kind of in connection to Ryan's questions around the transition to organizing in a virtual environment um, and the dynamic of seeing so much bad thing like bad happen um, around us and kind of having to regularly find your motivation what lessons have you had from your life um, for young organizers now in terms of finding your motivation yeah it helps me to even read about others and or to know about others or to experience what if video whatever to connect and see what other people are doing that's good and to feel like you are part of this worldwide effort to do things that reinforce you know life and the the um, ability for for young people to thrive and as it turns out when young people are thriving everybody is thriving so if we work on making things better for young people and when you feel like you're connect i know it's hard because of of being virtual and everything but there's ways to connect as as you know so well in other ways and so i say you know keep connecting that's what helps me um connecting i was connecting with a guy in pennsylvania today um, who's writing a book about kids standing up in different ways and i like to do zoom calls with middle school kids college with you all you're you're helping me just connecting to you and people are are speaking up and we're part of it and yes we're going to have days when we feel really down and discouraged and i mean just wonder like oh my god this is just awful what's going on in the world in so many ways all this pollution and the racial injustice war war money for wars saudi arabia i mean why are they our friend why are we selling all this stuff and helping people you know i mean it's just all of it is kind of overwhelming at times but um yeah i think connecting and then try to be healthy do things that promote your health like i always tell the kids like drink some juice you know, take a walk. You have to take care of your your body and your mind are connected, as we know. So if you take care of yourself and feel good physically, it really helps your mood. You get some rest, do something fun, do something pleasant, take a little rest. So that's what helps me. And in ending our conversation, Mary Beth asked Cora and I what we were both doing to fight for our rights and participate in our democracy. And we mentioned that we're both aspiring journalists with me running this podcast and Cora running the university newspaper. And hearing that, Mary Beth got really excited for the both of us. Right, right, right. That's kind of a challenge too. And journalism has changed so much. So much of this case, as I travel around the country, has to do with journalism and student journalism, so much of the emphasis. So I'm so excited that you're both into journalism. And the podcast is great too, Ryan. I'm really glad that you're doing this. That takes some planning and effort and everything. And Cora, I just think it's great. And I'm a huge fan of of you journalists. So I'm really excited that you're doing that. And like you said, to represent, tell the stories 
that don't always get told. That's so important. Um, so yeah, I'm going to work with the Journalism Education Association, which is an association of high school journalism advisors. Maybe you know it, um, and talk to them more about trying to get more journalism into schools that haven't traditionally had journalism. It's so connected with civics to journalism. So I'm really glad that, that you two are doing it. There's so what a time it is for journalism and for journalists. You're picking a great time to, to do it. So keep up the good work. And thank you so much for inviting me tonight. It's really been good to be with both of you. And if I can ever, um, you know, uh, do anything for you, let me know. And for all the listeners, I hope you'll speak up for your rights and encourage young people to do the same and, and help our world move forward for, for youth all over the world. Thank you. And in concluding this episode, if there's one final lesson that Mary Beth has learned from all of this and wants to impart onto your brain, it's this. You know, I got scared. I was a kid. I was in eighth grade. But I learned a very important lesson that day. You don't have to be the most courageous person in the world. You can have a little tiny bit of courage. And you can get scared when you speak up and stand up about something. And you probably will be a little scared and nervous when you speak up for something you believe is right. And that's okay. And that's the message that I like to give to students as I travel around the country. And, you know, if I speak to sixth graders, seventh graders, or law school students, or adults in the community, whoever it is, high school students, middle, I mean, that is a message that you can be you and you can t still take a stand about something that you care about. I want to extend my sincerest thanks to Mary Beth Tinker for sitting down with me to talk about her journey advocating for First Amendment rights and children's rights for the past 50 years. You can follow her on Twitter at Mary B. Tinker, that is in our show notes, along with a link to her website, TinkerTourUSA.com. And also, a special shout out to Mr. John Rosherber. I hope you enjoyed this episode. One year after taking AP Gov with you, I still crave your praise and attention. For more updates on this podcast, you can follow this podcast on Instagram at Nosedive Podcast. That's in our show notes as well. This episode was written and edited by me, Ryan Loyola, with additional production and help from Cora Fortune. Cover art for the show was designed by Jamie Mazer and me, Ryan Loyola. And our theme music is Groove It Now by J-Man from Our Music Box. If you're interested in creating your own podcast, make sure to click the link in the show notes to start your podcasting journey with Buzzsprout. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you download, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. And if you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening, and hopefully you'll tune in next time, whenever it may be. So long. <laughs>